Hi there, guten Morgen. It's the middle of the night and I want to look at more clips about Trump going to fucking jail. So, folks, my goodness, it's getting even worse. Earlier today, we heard the news surrounding old Donnie. Really, last night, it was hinted at by his team that he was going to, quote-unquote, go peacefully, that if there was an indictment, it wasn't going to be a big issue. And yet, this morning, he not only announced that he's going to be arrested on Tuesday, but that he made an open call for violence. Basically ripping up that promise, either in word or at least in theory, that he was going to go peacefully. And, and indeed, he wanted his people to get rowdy on his behalf. And it turns out, not only that we have some breaking analysis of those words, but we also have Trump with brand new statements, less than a few moments old, which showcase even more desire for violence. For Trump to have his supporters either hurt or kill or threaten his enemies in a way to protect him from prison. And that this cannot be disconnected both from the racial politics of Trump and his far-right movement, but also from the legacy of J6. And two people that have a really good sense of both of those things drop some really good analysis. First here, talks about the danger of Donald Trump and the racial uh, aspect of it. Those, that reporting for NBC is real, and the prospect that Trump might be indicted is real. And so, with these posts, we know what his response to that will be. We don't know what his response will be in the courtroom. I don't think we've had a clear view of what his legal defense is going to be, but his overall defense is going to be to try to raise the civic cost of indicting him. He is trying mm. to bring intimidation and pressure to bear against the prosecutors who are considering right now whether to indict him. Um, and he's hoping to create fear that there'll be another January 6th type event or, you know, his followers will go shoot up another FBI office or, you know, some, something else that he could, he could cause to happen by asking his followers to go into the streets in his defense. I'm glad you brought that up, and I love that phrasing, uh, uh, raise the, the civic cost of indicting him. And I'm just wondering, it's hard not to recall January 6th when you read a post like the one he put out this morning. And I want you to talk further, whether, how concerned are you and should people be concerned that, that Trump's supporters will see this as a call to action? Well, he's trying to make it that. I mean, one of the things that I've been <laughs> sort of poking around, thinking about, and trying to do some research on this week is trying to quantify the number of public officials and former public officials who get arrested and indicted for stuff. And it's, it's taken me a few days, and I've been poking around at it for a while, because it's essentially an infinite number. <laughs> there are so many State senators, big city mayors, governors, members of Congress, former members of Congress, statewide elected officials of other kinds who get arrested and indicted and thrown out of office and occasionally jailed. It just happens all the time. And it's not the end of the world. It's not even the political end of the world for some of those mm -hmm. figures. Um, I was uh, looking back at Huey Long, who I think is We've got great news for seniors. The Social Security Administration has made a small burial fund available to every senior citizen who qualifies.
but it's not <laughs> enough. So the state has approved an affordable. One of the historical figures we've got in this country who's most analogous to Trump in terms of the effect that he has on his supporters. And Huey Long, one of his great laugh lines, one of his great applause lines at the sort of apex of his political career when he was getting ready to, to challenge FDR in 1936 before he was uh, assassinated and wasn't able to do it. Um, one of Huey Long's great laugh lines was about how many times he had escaped indictment. Um, how he, they tried to impeach him and they tried to indict him and it just made him stronger and stronger and stronger. Getting arrested, getting indicted, even going to jail isn't the end of the line. It isn't the end of the world. But Trump is trying to make it that. He's trying to make it so that there is a threat of uncontrollable political violence in this country that is triggered, that would be triggered by any um, any act of the legal system against him. It's his effort. There's nothing intrinsic about him getting in trouble as a potentially publicly corrupt a public corrupt figure um, that that should cause violence. But he's trying to make mm -hmm. sure that it does. And the question is whether his followers do it doesn't have to be the end of the world for him and could potentially be a positive for him. But if he's asking for a militant, racially, racially tinged, violent response from his followers, that's something that won't be good for him. You know, January 6th is not good for Trump's political legacy, for all the other things that... So Matta does a great job there. I think at one, showing the sense that Donald Trump is issuing this threat, which is a stochastic terrorist threat that will have people harmed. But in general, it's just a move by Trump to, to raise the cost of holding him accountable, whether it's a human cost like lives, people hurt, people injured, people with like PTSD and things like that, or whether it's like just a, a budgetary cost that if you're going to hold Trump accountable, you're going to have to spend millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars as a municipality for the extra police and for the cleanup and for the property damage, all the barricades, all of that stuff. It's something that Donald Trump wants people to think about. And so he is making it very clear that even if he's going to surrender, he's doing it in a way that will cause carnage in New York and other places where he may get indicted in the coming weeks and months, but also any random part of the country where enough Trump supporters get together and just stop cars start causing riots. Like with J6, uh, there was a worry that there were going to be riots all over the country. Luckily, they weren't. It was localized mostly within, you know, the capital area. But there's no guarantee that that'll be the same this time. And you saw after the raid at Mar-a-Lago, there was like an un there was a related uh, FBI shootout event at a different part of the country, not directly connected to either Mar-a-Lago or Washington D.C. in a direct way, which shows that this could go national. It could go to all 50 states, countless counties, and municipalities all over. And here's where it gets really interesting, because Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, understands that Donald Trump is doing this on purpose. And we're going to get to his new statement as well. But this shows that this is a call for another January 6th. Let's stir this all up. This is probably him. This is exactly him reacting to information that he has and not leaks, as he would like to say, by the district attorney's office. There is no leaks coming out of the DA's office. That I can tell you for sure. This is all coming out of Trump camp. And I'll tell you something else about when I read that, uh, that post. It's eerily similar to the battle cry that he put out just prior to the January 6th insurrection, you know, uh, especially including the call, you know, for protest. And I agree with Andrew Weissman when he said, 
Uh, it would have been smart for Donald to write peaceful protest, but he doesn't want a peaceful protest. He wants, a, he wants another violent clash on his behalf for two reasons. One, because the fools that are representing him, this clown show of lawyers, what they believe is that this will propel him into the White House by having another violent insurrection. This time it would be in New York. But more importantly for Donald, it's all about the great grift. He will look to profit from this action by soliciting contributions in order to protect him, your favorite president, from the racist Alvin Bragg and all of the you know, left-wingers. Michael, we do know, this we do know, Trump's attorneys have said that Trump will surrender if he's indicted. An indictment has not been returned yet by this grand jury, to the best of our knowledge. He has not been arrested yet. But his attorney says he will surrender himself. You know Donald Trump very well. Does that sound right to you? Does it make sense that he would voluntarily turn himself in? Or do you think he'd want to martyr himself a little bit more and try to make them work harder to be able to get him into custody? No, no, he'll turn himself in because the other way is extremely embarrassing. And um, he's already trying to make himself into a martyr. So he doesn't need to have them pick him up, whether he's at his Texas rally or in another state. Um, he's, he's already classified himself as a martyr. There's, there's no other way to look at it, guys. You can't, we saw that earlier. You cannot disconnect this. It is about threatening people. It is Trump telling his fans, you took some lives on my behalf, on J6. I know some of them will say, oh, directly, indirectly, people passed away from, uh, you know, heart attacks or whatever, blah, blah, blah. You, lives were taken on my behalf on January 6th. And I want you to do it again to my enemies. Never going to get held up in court because Trump knows how to do stochastic terrorism. But that's what he's asking to do. And here's his new statement, which is even more unhinged than the one this morning, but even more violent at the same time. And it says, it's time. We are a nation in steep decline, being led into the World War III by a crooked politician who doesn't even know he's alive, but who is surrounded by evil and sinister people who, based on their actions of defunding the police, destroying our military, open borders, no border ID, inflation, raising taxes, and much more, can only hate our now failing USA. We just can't allow this anymore. They're killing our nation as we sit back and watch. We must save America. Protest, protest, protest. And again, with Donald Trump, protests aren't peaceful. They're not. He does not get the benefit of the doubt. Any other politician, frankly, even other Republicans, as much as I would hate to admit it, when they call for protests, they should get the benefit of the doubt that it's not a call for violence. But Donald Trump has a track record. He has a record in this sense. He has a rap sheet in this sense. He has called for people to stand back and stand by. He's called for people to get wild. He's called for people to do whatever it takes to help save the country. And what did that lead to? It led to January 6th and the loss of life on that day. And now it's even bigger stakes for Trump because he just lost the White House at that time. Now he could be losing his freedom. It is going to be even more violent potentially if he can convince his base to get violent. We don't know if that's going to happen, but that is his intent. Restore your eyesight back to perfect 2020 vision.
with this simple 60-second method that anyone can do from the comfort of their own home. Ditch your reading glasses and forget about expensive eye surgery. Just follow these simple steps to reverse and prevent age-related Okay, let's see what else we got. Traders, it big time. Oh, lose. Crisis at Silicon Valley Bank led to an old-fashioned bank run. Are we in the midst of a new financial crisis? President Biden proposes a budget while the GOP struggles to do the same. Then the Manhattan DA brings in Michael Cohen, signaling they may be close to announcing an indictment. We'll discuss all of that and more. This is Majority 54. All right, Jason. Well, we've been through a couple of these types of things before now. And something something feels really rocky right now uh, in the banking sector and this economy generally. This this bank called Silicon Valley Bank, which I confess to have not did not know that this bank was a bank. It's like a huge bank, too. It turns out. Yeah, like two hundred billion dollars in assets, and I didn't realize. You know, Thursday, Friday of last week, I started having people in my life cancel meetings. I I didn't realize how many people <laughs> in my life banked with Silicon Valley Bank, which I think is a measure of how out of touch I've become. You know, uh, but or, this or, is. Well, I don't know. Is that me? Oh, I guess the, just the amount of people in, not that you didn't know, but that how yeah. many people in your life bank was. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. you're right. That I agree. Yeah. That is a measure of that. I still, for the record, use Bank of America. This The very account I opened when I was 18 years old is still my <laughs> bank account. So I have not changed. And not even a podcast. Just, now we're just giving out free ones, Bank of America. Yeah. You give us a call. Yeah, well, well, Silicon Valley Bank apparently was founded in 1983, the year of my birth, which means I've outlived it, it seems. Uh, so, uh, it, it, let me give you some background on what happened last week, and then we'll talk a little bit about what's happened in the past few days. So, uh, this bank, founded in 1983, became known uh, as heavy in helping out tech startups, and they were particularly successful during the pandemic. Uh, their deposits tripled. Uh, from the period ending in 2019 to the end of 2021. So triple their deposits. And they put a chunk of those deposits into long-term bonds and treasuries because banks tend to want to make money with the money that they have in deposits. And the problem with these uh, long-term bonds and treasuries is uh, you don't get the money you put in it until the bond matures or you sell the bond. And so what wound up happening is the Fed started raising interest rates which reduces the value of these bonds. And so if you're listening and you might be like, well, why does a bond lose value as interest rates rise? There are a couple of reasons, one of which is people issue new bonds at higher interest rates at that period of time. So the opportunity cost of buying your bond uh, doesn't make sense. So people will want to buy new bonds. There's other reasons like present value and discount rates and all that. But this is not an economics podcast, so we won't go into that. Because you've already uh, lost me. So, <laughs> but you know, like if this you're is bond, not my you area, it, man. So pretend you have a bond that pays you out two percent, but okay. now the interest rates go up, and now it says you can get six percent on the market. Right. Uh, why would I buy your bond? So I would that buy makes something sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's essentially what happens. So um, the Fed interest rate hikes also cooled the economy 
which and especially the tech sector has been struggling, which means people are depositing less in the bank. So a bunch of things are happening at once. And so uh, tech companies are pulling deposits. They're making less deposits as well because they're pulling deposits to make payroll and all this kind of stuff. But they're also making less deposits and there are fewer tech startups generally at this period of time. So when all of this is going on, Silicon Valley Bank uh, has to sell. 21 billion dollars so about 10 percent of their assets 21 billion dollars of uh, bonds at a nine percent loss so they're basically saying hey we need to sell these at a loss so that we can make good on our depositors now if that was all of the, that was if that was the only part of the story we wouldn't even be talking about this we might not even know about it but they did a strange thing they announced that they were doing this and then they said they were going to issue new stock in their bond in their bank and sell it to make up for that loss, which basically sent a bit of a panic through the tech sector last week. And a, and a few prominent venture capitalists like Peter Thiel got on apparently text threads and were basically talking to each other uh, and sowing panic amongst their own ranks and then telling their companies that they've invested in to pull their money out of this bank. So, so you know, why we, did the bank do that? Why did it do, why did it say that it yeah, was? Why did it announce? I mean, that's because it feels like there's a lot of people feeling like there's some backdoorness to this some you know like yeah the, the the doj being one of them right yeah yes. i i think i think we won't we don't know also, for sure I, think I just invented a word backdoor yeah <laughs> we don't know for sure we do know that certain executives at this bank sold uh significant stock allocations a week before all of this including uh, the ceo right yeah including the ceo now the way this works is you have to file a month ahead of time in order to do that so if if this was some kind of sinister move it was long in the planning this wouldn't mm. this might not have been a kind of thing that was a fly-by-night operation now the bank run was a short-term panic and by most accounts this bank wasn't even remotely the worst off bank uh like you know related to its peers like there was this paper uh that matthew iglesias for example was circulating that just came out that essentially said there are you know a ton of other banks that if you compare them to silicon valley bank were had way worse fundamentals what I mean, silicon it, it feels oh, like silicon valley tech executives and you know entrepreneur folks were just like it feels like a like a mob hit on this yeah. thing, right? It's I mean, weird because this is their own. So this is the equivalent of, you know, like in Staten Island Bank. In Staten Island, we have Richmond County Savings Bank, which is where a lot of people open their first savings account where we come from and where a lot of people get their mortgages. I'm sure you have the equivalents in Kansas City. Right. This is the equivalent. And, and these the Silicon Valley Bank is not just the bank to the tech sector, but they give apparently really low interest mortgages to people who wouldn't otherwise qualify, but who are working for startups. They give bridge loans to startups that wouldn't otherwise be able to get them. This is a bank that has really took taken care of their own. And what's amazing to me is just how ruthless these tech companies and VC are where they just basically were like they just cut mm -hmm. these people loose uh and so what wound up happening is there was an old-fashioned run on this bank and then people couldn't pull their money out of it because the fdic stepped in and then uh what happened was uh the federal reserve so there's a panic sowing friday and through the weekend and then uh the fdic and federal reserve stepped in and essentially took control of this bank and another bank that was struggling, Signature Bank. And so now this is two bank failures in a few days. 
that are now the number two and number three largest bank failures in American history in a matter of a couple of days. And what the FDIC and Federal Reserve did is they guaranteed deposits. And they said, all right, anybody who has a deposit in this bank is you could take your money out on Monday, which is exactly what happened, which is why the markets kind of have stabilized somewhat. They're, They're medium and small size banks are still struggling in the market, but by and large, at least in the short term, a crisis has been averted. But there's a lot of politics here, Jason. Well, okay. So to compare it to 08, they're allowing the banks to fail. Right? Yeah. I mean, they're, but they're they're making the depositors whole, but they're not they're not doing what they did before, which is we got you know it's it's like a national imperative that this that this corporation continue to exist, and we're going to put a bunch of government money in there. We got, I mean, in addition, like it's not really taxpayer dollars, right? It's it's fees yeah. paid by banks that fund the FDIC. Yes, but there is a caveat here, and I and I I've been in some debates with people over the past few days about this, and part of it isn't the government isn't totally clear about this. By and large, yes. There's one thing that the Federal Reserve said that I'm not quite sure how this is going to work in practice, and I haven't seen any really good reporting on this, which is they essentially said that they were going to make loans available to banks that honors. Uh, the and I forget the technical term, but essentially remember what I was saying about bonds earlier, mm-hmm. like that you have a bond that pays out at the end, but it's now trading at below its value. And in this case, they they sold it at nine percent below their value, losing a ton mm-hmm. of money. What the Federal Reserve is saying, they they're going to loan out money to banks, recognizing the face value, uh, the, lo- the basically the end result value the paper value of these bonds, even if they're trading lower than that. That is a sense a subsidy. Uh, to these banks. So if they so if they do that, I think that's politically explosive and then lends some credence to the sense that I wouldn't call it a bailout, but I would say it is taxpayer dollars at work there because it's not a good investment for the taxpayers. Right. And but let's go to Biden for a second because he, you know, he basically he came out pretty clear on this and I think signaled some confidence and his his comments uh yesterday, what are we at today? Tuesday, yeah, yesterday were Part of what I think was a pretty, even though I, I have some questions about what's going on here, was a pretty effective federal response to basically cool everybody down. Let's go to this clip. Hey, thanks for the quick action of my administration over the past few days. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. Last week, when we learned of the problems of the banks and the impact they could have on jobs of small businesses and banking systems overall, I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. They've done that. They've done that. On Friday, the government regulator in charge, the FDIC, took control of Silicon Valley Bank's assets. And over the weekend, it took control of Signature Bank's assets. Treasury Secretary Yellen and a team of banking regulators have taken action, immediate action. And here are the highlights. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills and stay open for business. No losses will be, and I'm on, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. 
Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that, because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. So that last part is key, Jason, because there were regulations, 2008 Dodd-Frank, capital and liquidity requirements, and stress tests to basically say, how do we avoid a 2008 financial crisis? And then in 2018, congressional Republicans with some Democrats uh, exempted small and medium-sized banks. And interestingly, the, and they raised the threshold uh, for the stress tests, like the key stress tests, to $250 billion. Now, Silicon Valley Bank is $200 billion. So one of the stress tests that they would have been required to do is what happens if interest rates skyrocket. Uh. So they, they would have been at least forced to play out what happened. So this is a classic case of regulation uh, being really – regulation could have stopped this potentially. Well, a regulation that was in place. And so, place. Yeah. you know, a, a few years ago and uh, but until the Trump administration, right? You know what? Because we're talking about the politics of this, one of the things that strikes me about that clip of Biden there is how much we probably politicians on both sides of the aisle, but particularly how much politicians on the left have learned over the yes, last few years yes. about how to talk. <laughs> right? Yes. Like, yeah. I mean, there's some stuff in there that like you would not have expected a few years ago to be in a president's prepared remarks but should be right yeah. like his prepared this is like the first stuff he's saying to make sure every, nobody freaks out and there's not a run on banks and that you don't have a huge political problem and people thinking that you handed out a sweetheart deal he says i mean he uses the words the management of these banks will be fired right he's not like being diplomatic about that he's like i need people to know this fact right yeah uh, and and then he's also saying like doesn't involve any taxpayer dollars. So the difference now in like being aggressive and going out there and saying, look, I know what they're going to try to say about me. And I know what you're wondering. So I'm just going to address it the way you would in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody. But in that case, he's talking to the country. Like that's a yeah. big deal that we've come that far in a row. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think what's fascinating to me is this is, this was a, such a classic case where regulation could have mitigated the risk of this happening. I'm not saying it for sure could have stopped it because in the end, this was a bank that was probably solvent. We'll find out for sure. It was the panic really that did it in. And, you know, if there are animal spirits involved, like does a stress test really stop that? We don't know. But, mm -hmm. uh, but what's fascinating to me is these, uh, the congressional Republicans and Republicans writ large are trying to make this about an elite bailout. Now, like this is this, this is the tech sector, uh -huh. Democrats are close. And remember who we're talking about here, Peter Thiel and these guys who are all Trump guys on a text message thread. These are the people getting bailed out here. Now, are all these tech companies 
uh, Republicans, of course, not like crooked media, for example, had credit cards with this bank, you know, mm-hmm. so like it's complicated. But of course, they don't they don't want to make a complicated situation complicated. They want to make it about this elite narrative within the Democratic Party. And if this were the Farmers Bank of Santa Clara County, uh, this would not be this. It wouldn't have the same kind of tinge to it. Right. right. But the fact that it's called Silicon Valley Bank, I think, makes this very politically difficult for Biden. Well, I, some of the memes and takes that I found most interesting about it focus on the like the common economic libertarianism of uh, Silicon Valley and of so many of these founders, right? Like, I think I saw one that was just saying, like, it was imitating them and being like, we don't need the government to do anything. We'll just solve all the problems that the government can't solve. Oh, wait, what? Interest rate? <laughs> government, get in here. Where are you, government? Like, right. wh- why is it taking so long, <laughs> right? And uh, Right. And and I think that there is an element of that there. So so it is it's it's like especially ironic, right? It's not just that you have the Peter Thiel's of the world, but you also have even for you know some of the more maybe liberal uh, folks in Silicon Valley, a lot of them still come from like a fiscally sort of libertarian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you know, you and I have actually both for different reasons spent a fair amount of time in Silicon Valley and. Uh, you know, I've been out there because I've been out there to raise political money. And, uh, well, that's probably actually part of why you've been out there. <laughs> so not that yeah, that's reasons. exactly what I've spent time there. That's, that is yeah. the only, that is the only time I've spent there. Yeah. yeah. I've not, I've not, I've not been out there talking to people about my Including with now. Sam Bankman Fried's <laughs> mother. Literally, right. literally, I don't know if I've shared that in this podcast. I would say like at least 50% of the time I've been in Silicon Valley, I have sat down with Sam Bankman Freed's family because they used to be like very involved in democratic raising. Uh, and thankfully, I've never taken any of their money. Uh, I only have seen them around uh, the circuit. Well, yeah. and I, I haven't either that I know of, but I've, uh, you know, I've been out there with, I've sat down with a lot of bold-faced Silicon Valley names. Now, we don't have conversations about how Silicon Valley works because I just had, you just had to explain how a bank run works. <laughs> I, you know, I, I remember like several years ago sitting down with a, with a dude before crypto became a thing and he explained cryptocurrency to me and I was like, this is crazy. This will never be a thing. I'm sure he didn't explain it right because I've still yet to find a person who can explain <laughs> crypto to me well, attempted- including... Including I've been on the I've been on a call before with a Cornell professor who wrote a whole book about crypto and at the end of it I was more confused than when I started. Yeah, I mean, well, so you know I've been in that world and it's one of the things that's so interesting to me about that world is that it's not that the people aren't I mean, you know a lot of them are good people like anywhere else there's a smattering of this and that but what's so interesting to me is that the culture there is so about the quant thing. It's about, it's not about the quality of anything. It's about the, can you quantify? It's very, it's a very analytical culture as, as you would imagine to the point where I don't know what your experience was. I don't think we've ever talked about this, but like for me as a political fundraiser out there, who's basically, you know, you're basically selling something, right? When you're fundraising politically, you're selling a story, you're trying to make an emotional pitch in order to, uh, you know, make the sale, get someone to invest in what you're after. And I found Silicon Valley to be the one of the wealthiest places I went to raise money, but also uh, at the same time, one of the hardest places to actually raise money because my usual stuff where I would appeal to people's like emotions and that kind of thing, it just didn't work because everybody was so uh, purely analytical that like, it just was like, it wasn't work. You know, people just kind of stared yeah. back at me. It's uh, funny you should say hard. this. 
it's funny. This is actually an interesting uh, aside because the reason why I knew the the Bankman Freed family is because I was I had one model for candidate support, which was very much about the quality of the candidate. And part of our model at Arena was we find really strong candidates, and we pair them up with difficult uh, districts. Mm-hmm. What Bankman Freed's uh, family was doing, and it was his brother and his mom. Uh, that where they were doing the quantitative method that you're talking about, which is what do the numbers say the right places to invest in? And what's interesting to me is if you look back, and so we would often be at the same fundraisers, this is how I would always run into them, and we'd be pitching the same donors on different theories of the case. And if you look back at the candidates that we were pitching versus the candidates they were pitching, who were the candidates that we were pitching? Uh, Houlihan, Alyssa Slotkin, Haley Stevens, Lauren Underwood. You know, you go down the list, these candidates, Lena Hidalgo, right? These candidates, you know, won difficult races and by and large have survived. And analytically on paper, they would not have been. No way. Lauren Underwood. Are you kidding me? Naperville, Illinois, you know, like, like these were white conservative district. Yeah. uh, You know, one by one by a black woman and then held by a black woman. Uh, So what I'm saying, Jason, is I'm proud of me. Yeah, I'm proud. Well, it's funny because it, it it's it's kind of like for baseball fans, uh, the people may be somewhat familiar. Anybody who's seen Moneyball is familiar with the idea that there is still this, you know, these two worlds in in baseball, right? The old school people who are like, ah, too many statistics. Or, you know, I can I know a baseball player when I see one, and this is true in all sports now, really. And then yep. all the analytical folks, you know, who want to who want to get into the data. Yeah, I guess I'm the old scout in that example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but because there's a place for both. My funny, uh, somewhat related Silicon Valley fundraising story is um, also one where I I don't think I got funding. Um, so it was uh, Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter, who's a, a St. Louis guy, and his, his parents are still in St. Louis. Good family, good Missouri family. Uh, I was raising money for Let America Vote. I want to say this is like 17 or 18, 2017, 2018, something like that. So I go to Twitter and I sit down. Actually, I think it was at Square at that time. And I sit down with Jack Dorsey. And uh, and speaking of the like, I'm going to make sort of an emotional appeal thing. Uh, he was very nice, didn't end up, uh, you know, making a donation to Let America Vote. But my my like emotional appeal was because he was a Missouri guy. I brought this T-shirt from this T-shirt store in Springfield, Missouri, that makes these shirts that it, uh, just say Missouri is awesome. And it's all these different Missouri is awesome slogans. And it's it's just fun merch. The thing is, I didn't realize Jack Dorsey is a is a pretty uh, uh, small person, right? Like, like, I don't know, that's probably the wrong <laughs> term. Jack Dorsey is not a big guy, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know. He's, I don't want to guess his height and weight, but I'm bigger than Jack Dorsey, right? And um, and uh, and so I brought because you know when you don't know what t-shirt size to get somebody, you generally go medium or large, you know. <laughs> and uh, Jack Dorsey, I think, certainly wears a small. Um, and uh, and so it was just this awkward moment where. He, being a very analytical guy, didn't really care that I brought him a T-shirt anyway. But on top of that, he must have just been like, what a dope. Like, I brought him a shirt that was, I basically brought him a night shirt. Um, and we never, he never mentioned it. He was very nice about it. But that was kind of my, I have always thought about that, about the difficulty of raising money out there. Um, oh, man. But anyway, point being, well, what I was going, where I was going with all this is that, you know, you were saying all these folks who have invested in this, what is essentially a community bank, their larger, very wealthy, very entrepreneurial community, having no qualms about just sort of 
knifing that bank and making a right. run on that bank because no matter what their moral framework, and it's different for each of them as it is different for every human, the way they do business is it's all dictated by the numbers, even more than than a lot of corporations in this country. And I, and I think that's a lot of what happened. There's something wrong with our society where people just can come together like that and say, you know what, this institution, which has done so much for us, we, we're just going to kill it. And, it, you know, that text thread should have been, how do we save this bank? There was enough money around right. that table to save that bank. And they could have just saved it by doing nothing. But they, yeah. they, they really could have, they should have just been coming together. And, and it's amazing that this isn't even, this wasn't the dominant part of the conversation. And it, and it, and it makes you think, people are saying this was a, an old fashioned, you know, early, I had a guy say to me the other day, this is an early 20th century run. I'm like, this is a, this is a 2023 run. Like right. the text thread, the fact that you could pull your money out. Like, like these guys would have had to go to the bank back in the day and pull it out. It would have been way slower. The government could have reacted faster. Uh, but the other thing that this raises is and also where would they have met up to come up with all this, right? They would yeah. have, everybody down to the barbershop. We're going to talk contagion, about how to do this. The contagion risk would have been much lower. Now, right. the the other problem now is that in 2023 there was this you know this saying back in 2008, too big to fail. And when you said too big to fail, you meant Bank of America, you meant Chase, mm -hmm. you meant Goldman Sachs, Lehman, right? Now you've got this is the 16th largest bank in the country is somehow now too big to fail. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, well, what the hell is going on here? Like, if all mm -hmm. these institutions are too big to fail in the 2023 environment, then we really got to rethink our regulation. Well, it it makes me think about like. You know, we, we don't really think about how uh, genius of a concept the FDIC is ever. Yeah, like, it really you know, is. It's right? You don't think about that. Yeah, you don't think about that the way you don't think about how amazing it is that they're able to pick up your trash, right? Like, but like, it took a lot of work to figure out how to pick up your trash, right? Uh, now, and a lot of hardship, honestly. Like, if you look at the FDIC, right? right. Like, like people and, had to really suffer for us to come up with that concept. Exactly. Like, you know, coming out of the 30s, coming out of all those experiences, just the fact that those guys can be on that, and I assume maybe some gals, be on that text chain and say, like, and know that a certain amount of the depositors are going to be covered by this institution that's been created by regulation, by government, without government, like this takes everything down. Right. Like it doesn't matter that it's the 16th biggest bank. It causes a run everywhere else, right? Like you and I are going to take, take money out of our banks. If this happens and there's no FDIC and there's no, right. Like, so it's just, my point being it, as a, as a progressive, it is always important to note the opportunities, make the case for government, because like we talk about a lot of the time, we have to accept the idea that we are the party of government. We are the party right. that says like, no, government has a role to play and it's really important and government can do good things. We shouldn't just take a situation like this where everybody understands the FDIC exists and what it does and, and just ignore it. We should be like, no, no, no. See, this is actually a really good example that people won't notice otherwise. Totally agree. Well, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to talk about Biden's budget versus essentially nothing from the Republicans, how that debate is playing out. We're going to talk about Michael Cohen testifying uh, in front of a grand jury in this Trump indictment. And we're also going to talk about DeSantis versus Trump. Trump just put out another video attacking DeSantis today. We're going to unpack that and more. Let's hear from our sponsors. 
Well, long-time listeners of the show know that my favorite thing I take every single day is Athletic Greens, and this is your daily nutritional insurance. And what they have is this is just one scoop of powder that you put in water. It tastes really good, and it gives you 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients. And I take it now in place of coffee in the morning, but of course you could take it and take your coffee in the morning. And then if I'm like particularly active during the day, like if I have like a crazy workout or I just am on my feet all day and, and feeling a little run down, I'll take it a second time. And I travel everywhere with it. And if you're looking for a simpler, cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. You can go to athleticgreens.com slash majority. That's athleticgreens.com slash majority to check it out. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know that these dog days, these last days of winter can be really difficult for people. It's dark over here in New York. It's snowing out, and it's really important to identify the way that your mood changes at this time. I certainly feel it, and it's important that if you're not feeling right, to get help. And what I love about BetterHelp, our sponsor, is that they offer uh, therapy. It sounds to me like Biden and the veterans of the Obama administration learned from the previous negotiations with with Congress over uh, the budget during you know recession risk. And last time they agreed to a lot of fiscal constraint on the front end and basically negotiated with themselves. And Biden came out and said, you know what? I've added 12 million jobs, more jobs than in two years than any president has created in a four-year term, uh, including 800,000 manufacturing jobs. The unemployment rate is at 3.4%, the lowest in 54 years. So he's like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a little pep in my step, and I, I'm not going to negotiate with myself here. I'm going to just put out the budget I want. And this budget is really detailed. You know, I was going through this, and it has you know too much to mention, but it protects and strengthens Medicare. It extends the solvency of Medicare's trust fund by at least 25 years uh, without cutting benefits or raising the costs for beneficiaries. It cuts taxes for families. It extends the uh, full child tax credit, uh, which was in the American Rescue Plan. And, you know, that you know, think about all the things that Biden has done, like the, the child tax credit cut child poverty in half in 2021 to its lowest level in history, right? It's just- amazing that that's a thing that happened and not just like an academic thing that you could claim a CBO estimate would say your proposal would do. Like that's a thing that happened. It's crazy. It's, it's hard to talk about these things because the tax credit, right? Like these are not like yeah. easy things to talk about. You know, speaking of, you know, extended key sections of the ACA or he's trying to, uh, it would give Medicare more power to negotiate prescription drug prices. It invests $150 billion over 10 years to improve and expand Medicaid home and community-based services. You know, totally underrated issue right now where we have the largest group of right, retirees we've ever had and will ever have. So it's going to be really important to try to keep those folks as much as possible out of nursing homes, give them like the kind of care they need, especially the most vulnerable society. Uh, it provides almost a billion dollars in 2024 to expand the National Health Service Corps, uh, which provides loan repayment and scholarships to healthcare professionals in exchange for practicing in underserved areas. This is the stuff that we talked about with student loans a while ago mm-hmm. that got me in trouble with my new best friend, our <laughs> baker in Kansas, which is like I was saying, look, like let's tie relief to certain jobs in our society. Uh, obviously, we're going to add those bakers in because she and I are really cool now, and I understand <laughs> more now than I knew before. Uh, but the uh, that's a that's a deep cut for some of our new listeners. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, yeah. but you got to reward the the longtime listeners. You got to reward the longtime listeners. But this some of this did you know about some of this stuff? I didn't like. I didn't know this stuff was on the table. 
right? So this is like it's crazy, and it's got supply side housing stuff, like basically building more supply. Like Newsom has gotten much better on this kind of stuff, where they're trying to push. New York is doing this. Hochul's doing this in in, in New York, and California is doing this under Newsom. Biden's not doing this. Democrats are getting now in the business of building more housing and understanding that's a key to affordability and integration. This stuff is like each one of these things is a humongous deal, right? It's- I have I have different emotions when I read like when I read about the budget. One is, uh, man, I know it was like almost impossible. It would have been really cool to keep the house uh, because you could do this stuff, right? Um, two, like it bumps me out because I'm like, oh, because first you're like you read it and you're like, oh, that's cool, that's cool, and then you remember, oh, this isn't happening. This yeah. is like basically academic. This is this is no different. I mean, to make a real nerd callback, uh, this is no different than like the bills that were proposed when you were in student congress in high school, right? right? Like right. it has the same authority because there's a Republican House, and that's kind of a bummer when you realize that. But at the same time, there's stuff in there uh, that, I mean, if you're being honest. I don't know, and there's even stuff that wasn't proposed when we had unified control of government um, because you don't want to propose it and then not be able to do it. But now that you know you're not going to get your stuff done, like the billionaire tax that is a 25% you know, annual income tax of, of you know their overall worth or their overall uh, income for that year um, of the 0.01%, top 0.01% of the population, for whatever reason, that wasn't proposed before, probably because people would have been really mad when you know, Mansion and Cinema wouldn't have allowed him to actually do it. Right. Uh, so some of it is political. Cinema, cinema Senator from Venture Capital, Private right. Equity. Uh, yes. it's, a, it's a small town in Arizona. But uh, yeah, she, she's clearly auditioning. No, I hear you. He's, he's playing opposition politics in the presidency. Which yes. I think this, well is a lesson, this is a lesson learned from the midterms where we were playing, I was talking to Kristen Soltis Anderson, uh, the Republican uh, pollster. I think she's kind of like a moderate. I don't even think she considers herself a Republican anymore, but I was talking to her the other day about how this is like Biden did something remarkable in that race because he was able to turn the Supreme court and a couple other issues like election denialism, what was happening in state houses around the country to say, look, I may be the president, but there are all these other people who are in control of various forms of government, in some cases like the Supreme Court stopping me from doing critical things, they're as much uh, on this ballot as I am. And that was really successful. So I think they're learning from that as we head towards this election. Yeah, because what we would do in the past is we would just fall into the idea that why aren't we able to do the things that we said we were going to do? Right, And And then we turn on each other, which we're not doing right now, thank God. Exactly. And uh, the the other thing I got from so far from paying attention to this budget debate that's so interesting to me is the a very difficult situation the Republicans are in because they've made all of these lofty promises of things that they want to do. And the expectation I'm sure of their voters is that they, they at least pass something out of the house that does the stuff that they want to do, right? That they balance the budget that they, but then Biden and the Democrats have forced them because they don't want to actually lose the majority and they don't want to lose the seats that are in more competitive areas to commit to things like, and also because they don't want to lose generally, to commit to things like not cutting Medicare or Social Security, at least on paper, which is why they can't create a budget. Like, they can't offer a right. budget that's going to pass the House because you, they can't do both of those things because, like, like Biden can be like, I'm going to balance the budget by a certain period of time because he throws in there the idea that, hey, we're going to really increase taxes on the top 0.01%. And knowing that 
that makes sense to people. And then people aren't going to yeah. be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now that's the third rail. Don't touch the 0.01%. Right. You know, <laughs> you know, whereas like they can't do that because well, that's their funders. Well, you know, Biden met with McCarthy and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things got interesting there. Um, Salty, I don't know if you could tee up this video, but th- let's go to a video of Biden as he came out of that meeting uh, with McCarthy. Why aren't you investing in real estate? Seriously, what are you doing to own property in 2023? Look, I get it. You might even be thinking right now, well, Sean, it's because I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars just sitting around doing nothing. Okay, that's why, right? But just for a second, I want you to think what a second stream of income could do for you and your family. Real strategies that normal people like you and I could actually do. And I'm not talking about some private jet or a vacation home on a beach somewhere. I'm talking about new income that you currently don't have. Okay, how about $1,600, $3,000, or even $6,000 a month? Now, stay with me. Right now, it doesn't matter how much money you have, how old or young you are. Anybody can buy property, and I'm going to show you how to do it for pennies on the dollar. First, look at this property right here. Okay, this is Madrid. I paid $27,000 for this property and own it free and clear with no mortgage. And without putting a dime of my own money in it, I'm going to sell it for over $235,000. That's right. And this is a right now deal. This is the oldest investment strategy in America. It's called tax lien certificates. You see, the county has to get rid of these properties. It's the law. So they partner with people like you and I to make these delinquent accounts whole. When you invest in tax lien certificates, only one of two things can happen. Number one, you receive government-mandated checks in the mail for $2,000, $3,000, even $6,000. Or number two, you take ownership of the properties and own them free and clear. My friends, these are the exact steps that I have followed for the last 30 years. This has allowed me to scale my real estate portfolio year after year. Now, the good news is, if you're watching this video, it means that we're coming to your area to teach a class on tax lien certificates. So click the link below, reserve your two seats for you and a friend, and start your journey to a new income and set yourself free. I'll see you there. dark floaters and blind spots i can't see joe barton here now if you're type 2 and currently taking common blood sugar meds then hurry and check your vision for these two things that i'm going to show you in this video right now first of all if you're seeing dark spots and floaters or noticing your vision has been getting blurry I just want you to know that it may have nothing to do with your eyes or your age or even needing new glasses. You see, this is because type 2 hardens and damages blood vessels all over the body. But what most people don't realize is that type 2 affects the blood vessels that connect to our eyes and the brain. The U.S. National Eye Institute explains the sugar in our body can block the tiny blood vessels that go to your retina, causing it to leak fluid and even blood. And that's why we start seeing these odd floaters or dark spots. And this scary thing 
could be happening right now to you, and it's called type 2 retinopathy, and it's the leading cause of blindness in the U.S. So if you're seeing floaters, notice blurry vision. Even though you've gotten new glasses, experience dizziness, become more sensitive to light, and want to know what you must do to start taking care of this issue, I just posted a short video clip showing folks exactly how to clear out this vision concern all while maintaining healthy blood sugar levels at the same time. And you can see it all for free by clicking the watch now button below. But many people never get a chance to do so because they end up confused. And it's unfair that people must endure years of pain and damage before figuring this out. I discovered it's mainly because very few people are equipped with the proper knowledge, like what foods to eat and even what blood-destroying drinks that they must avoid. And if you're sick of generic advice such as, get more exercise, or take more meds, which leads nowhere and almost always fails, listen, I just posted a brand new video showing what folks over 40 with blood sugar concerns must do to start naturally fixing type 2 and seeing healthier glucose levels in days. That's right. So for anyone looking to take back control of their life and their blood sugar health, go ahead and tap on the watch now button below to see my brand new free video right now. And when you get there, you'll see the three worst drinks that folks with type 2 must steer clear of, which your doctor may have forgotten to tell you or may not even know about. I mean, yet, yet another example of where, you know, like even in early Obama days, that same situation, Obama is going to say, you know, well, I, I think the fact well, that they have not yet offered, yeah, well. they have not yet offered a budget says a lot about, and, you know, and yeah. now we've gotten to the point where Biden, the guy who's been in Washington for, for 40 plus years, right? Even he now, his natural instinct is to just be like, show me yours, I'll show you mine. Like, speak in yeah. ways people remember, usually speak. Remember this, uh, and by the way, if you can hear the honking, that's, that's true New York out there. It's authentic. But the, you know, I don't even. You can hear on my side, my daughter just singing a song. Like, that, <laughs> that's yeah. true. I'm 41 and I got two, you know, a wife and two kids and I live in Kansas City. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, I don't remember the exact words exchanged, but I remember when Obama and Paul Ryan had this exchange over the deficit. Do you remember this? And um, I bet you if we replayed it, it would be the most, like, totally chill like right. diffused situation ever, but everybody was clutching their pearls at the time. Like, Oh my God. And apparently Paul Ryan was like offended. And I think what o Obama did was basically have a policy debate. Right. right. And now things have changed so much. Well, so, um, so that's the budget debate. I think like essentially Republicans don't have one. They may never offer one. They're criticizing Biden. I'm not sure it's really landing. I'm not sure that the budget debate is going to be where, you know, this election is decided, but the, the obviously the um, the debt limit could matter, and the sort of nihilism of Republicans could matter, and so I think like that's obviously something we're keeping our eyes on over the next few months as that well, debate heats up. And when you talk to your friends about the politics of this moment, it's like, okay, you you might not agree with with Biden on a lot of things, 
but like of the two he's offering an idea like he's doing yeah. something he's offering a budget and what is the other side doing not not only are they not offering a budget but on top of that you know all we know about their budget is that one of their lead budget planners said that the most important thing their budget can do is not harm their majority so right. it's like and we always talk about assigning motive like that's what they're interested in. They're interested we, exclusively in how many members of Congress they have and not, you know, what happens for the country. Well, this is what I would say to Ben LeBolt and some of these other people in Biden world if they if they were to ever ask my opinion on this as they head towards the next election, which is we've got to learn from decades of getting our asses kicked by Republicans. What were they really good at? They were the party of more of the same stability, conserve, small C conservative. You know, the world is not going to change too much. And the, the Democrats, we were the party of the 60s, right? The boomers, like the Bill Clinton generation, the people with the long hippie hair. And then they finally cut it like, well, who's Tony Blair? Who's Bill Clinton? These were children really of the 60s, right? And they were like, even though we're not talking about the most radical people in the world, they represented people who were kind of trying to push change constantly, change, change, change. Now, what we have, where we find ourselves is we have to do, we have to play two different games at once. We want to push change increase rights for people, et cetera. That's baked into our politics, right? But by and large, we've won a lot of those battles. And right now we're playing defense on those battles. But then when it comes to other critical things like this bank situation and any instability in the economy, the debt limit increase, the Ukraine war, the pandemic, you go down the line and you say, all right, who are the people who are for stability? That's us. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is tell a story to the American people like what the Republicans used to tell, but a more ethical version of the story to say, look, like the world may not be exactly what you want it to be, but you could count on certain things. You can count on going to the bank. You can count on, you know, aggressive dictatorships, not invading our shores or the shores of our allies. You can count on the U S government paying its bills, right? These are all things that you can count on that you cannot count on if the Republicans take power because they are radicals. Right. And so, like, I think we need to get into the, you know, the habit of telling that story. And I know it's not natural to us because we're the people often pushing for change. Well, and what we've got to do, I agree with you completely, is we've got to bake in the idea that change is part of, of you know, sustainability and of stability. Right. That, like, that if you try and keep everything the same all the time, you, you won't have stability. You've got to be able to change as times change. Uh, but the difference is, is that they also want to change, but they want to change back to stuff right. from a long time ago that we've learned lessons since. And yeah, as, nerdy uh, political point. That right. was actually that what the Labor Party tried to peg Cameron with in that election. They used to say he wants to turn back the clock to the 1980s. And they had this, like, this really funny ad with a British television show. There's like one person in our audience who will get that reference. But, uh, okay, now, this is for the Midas audience. I know they love our, our Trump DA investigation stuff. The Midas Midas, we call them. So, uh, you know, right down the street, you could see it actually from my window, is the Manhattan DA's office. And Michael Cohen has now testified in front of the grand jury uh, or is testifying. And this is, you know, one of a few signs that uh, Alvin Bragg, our district attorney in Manhattan, is closing in on an indictment of Trump. Now, who knows for sure if this is going to happen, but it seems like, you know, most people I trust in this orbit, including reporters and just people who are around the courthouse and around the district attorney's office seem to think this is imminent. Jason, like, I, I, I can't even wrap my head around how explosive this is going to be. Well, because it seems like it's going to 
coincide with another indictment in Georgia, probably yeah. like not too far off. Uh, yeah, I was listening to something the other day that. It, If you're indicted and they were like, well, you get arraigned and they're like, well, what does that mean? They said, well, the actual policy in New York is, is that everyone in order to be arraigned must be handcuffed. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that alone is like, so I guess if things follow the way they're supposed to usually work, which with when it comes to Trump, they never do. But then in theory, once he's indicted in order to come in and, you know, enter his plea and, and that kind of thing he would have to be handcuffed in order to do that. Now, I don't know if that'll happen, but like mm. it, it's, it's about to get crazy. And it is why, as we've pointed out here before, it is why Trump announced so early because. Hi there. Guten Morgen. It's the middle of the night. And I want to look at more clips about Trump going to fucking jail. So, folks, my goodness, it's getting even worse. Earlier today, we heard the news surrounding Old Donnie. Really, last night, it was hinted at by his team that he was going to, quote-unquote, go peacefully, that if there was an indictment, it wasn't going to be a big issue. And yet, this morning, he not only announced that he's going to be arrested on Tuesday, but that he made an open call for violence. Basically ripping up that promise, either in word or at least in theory, that he was going to go peacefully. And, and indeed, he wanted his people to get rowdy on his behalf. And it turns out, not only that we have some breaking analysis of those words, but we also have Trump with brand new statements, less than a few moments old, which showcase even more desire for violence. For Trump to have his supporters either hurt or kill or threaten his enemies in a way to protect him from prison. And that this cannot be disconnected both from the racial politics of Trump and his far-right movement, but also from the legacy of J6. And two people that have a really good sense of both of those things drop some really good analysis. First here, talks about the danger of Donald Trump and the racial uh, aspect of it. Those, that reporting for NBC is real, and the prospect that Trump might be indicted is real. And so, with these posts, we know what his response to that will be. We don't know what his response will be in the courtroom. I don't think we've had a clear view of what his legal defense is going to be, but his overall defense is going to be to try to raise the civic cost of indicting him. He is trying mm. to bring intimidation and pressure to bear against the prosecutors who are considering right now whether to indict him. Um, and he's hoping to create fear that there'll be another January 6th type event or, you know, his followers will go shoot up another FBI office or, you know, some, something else that he could he could cause to happen by asking his followers to go into the streets in his defense. I'm glad you brought that up. And I love that phrasing, uh, uh, raise the, the civic cost of indicting him. And I'm just wondering, it's hard not to recall January 6th when you read a post like the one he put out this morning. And I want you to talk further whether how concerned are you and should people be concerned that, that Trump's supporters will see this as a call to action? Well, he's trying to make it that. I mean, one of the things that I've been 
sort of poking around thinking about and trying to do some research on this week is trying to quantify the number of public officials and former public officials who get arrested and indicted for stuff. And it's, it's taken me a few days, and I've been poking around at it for a while, because it's essentially an infinite number. <laughs> there are so many state senators, big city mayors, governors, members of Congress, former members of Congress, statewide elected officials of other kinds, who get arrested and indicted and thrown out of office and occasionally jailed. It just happens all the time. And it's not the end of the world. It's not even the political end of the world for some of those mm. figures. Um, I was uh, looking back at Huey Long, who I think is We've got great news for seniors. The Social Security Administration has made a small burial fund available to every senior citizen who qualifies, but it's not enough. So the state has approved an affordable... One of the historical figures we've got in this country who's most analogous to Trump in terms of the effect that he has on his supporters. And Huey Long, one of his great laugh lines, one of his great applause lines at the sort of apex of his political career when he was getting ready to, to challenge FDR in 1936 before he was uh, assassinated and then wasn't able to do it. Um, one of Huey Long's great laugh lines was about how many times he had escaped indictment. Um, how he, they'd try to impeach him and they'd try to indict him, and it just made him stronger and stronger and stronger. Getting arrested, getting indicted, even going to jail isn't the end of the line. It isn't the end of the world. But Trump is trying to make it that. He's trying to make it so that there is a threat of uncontrollable political violence in this country that is that would be triggered by any um, any act of a legal system against him. It's his effort. There's nothing intrinsic about him getting in trouble as a potentially publicly corrupt a public corrupt figure um, that that should cause violence. But he's trying to make mm -hmm. sure that it does. And the question is whether his followers do it doesn't have to be the end of the world for him and could potentially be a positive for him. But if he's asking for a militant, racially, racially tinged, violent response from his followers, that's something that won't be good for him. You know, January 6th is not good for Trump's political legacy, for all the other things that... So Matta does a great job there. I think at one, showing the sense that Donald Trump is issuing this threat, which is a stochastic terrorist threat that will have people harmed. But in general, it's just a move by Trump to, to raise the cost of holding him accountable. Whether it's a human cost, like lives, people hurt, people injured, people with like PTSD and things like that. Or whether it's like just a, a budgetary cost, that if you're gonna hold Trump accountable, you're gonna have to spend millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars as a municipality for the extra police and for the cleanup and for the property damage, all the barricades, all of that stuff. It's something that Donald Trump wants people to think about. And so he is making it very clear that even if he's going to surrender, he's doing it in a way that will cause carnage in New York and other places where he may get indicted in the coming weeks and months, but also any random part of the country where enough Trump supporters get together and just stop cars, start causing riots. Like with J6, uh, there was a worry that there were going to be riots all over the country. Luckily, they weren't. It was localized mostly within, you know, the capital area. But there's no guarantee that that'll be the same this time. And you saw after the raid at Mar-a-Lago, there was like an un there was a related uh, FBI shootout event at a different part of the country, not directly connected to either Mar-a-Lago or Washington D.C. in a direct way, which shows that this could go national. It could go to all 50 states. 
countless counties and municipalities all over. And here's where it gets really interesting, because Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, understands that Donald Trump is doing this on purpose. And we're going to get to his new statement as well. But this shows that this is a call for another January 6th. Let's stir this all up. This is probably him. This is exactly him reacting to information that he has and not leaks, as he would like to say, by the district attorney's office. There is no leaks coming out of the DA's office. That I can tell you for sure. This is all coming out of Trump camp. And I'll tell you something else about when I read that uh, that post. It's eerily similar to the battle cry that he put out just prior to the January 6th insurrection, you know, uh, especially including the call, you know, for protest. And I agree with Andrew Weissman when he said uh, it would have been smart for Donald to write peaceful protest, but he doesn't want a peaceful protest. He wants an, he wants another violent clash on his behalf for two reasons. One, because this fools that are representing him, this clown show of lawyers, what they believe is that this will propel him into the White House by having another violent insurrection. This time it would be in New York. But more importantly for Donald, it's all about the great grift. He will look to profit from this action by soliciting contributions in order to protect him, your favorite president, from the racist Alvin Bragg and all of the you know, left-wingers. Michael, we do know, this we do know, Trump's attorneys have said that Trump will surrender if he's indicted. An indictment has not been returned yet by this grand jury, to the best of our knowledge. He has not been arrested yet, but his attorney says he will surrender himself. You know Donald Trump very well. Does that sound right to you? Does it make sense that he would voluntarily turn himself in, or do you think he'd want to martyr himself a little bit more and try to make them work harder to be able to get him into custody? No, no, he'll turn himself in because the other way is extremely embarrassing. And um, he's already trying to make himself into a martyr. So he doesn't need to have them pick him up, whether he's at his Texas rally or in another state. Um, he's, he's already classified himself as a martyr. There's, there's no other way to look at it, guys. You can't. We saw that earlier. You cannot disconnect this. It is about threatening people. It is Trump telling his fans, you took some lives on my behalf on J6. I know some of them will say, oh, directly, indirectly, people passed away from, uh, you know, heart attacks or whatever, blah, blah, blah. You, lives were taken on my behalf on January 6th. And I want you to do it again to my enemies. Never going to get held up in court because Trump knows how to do stochastic terrorism. But that's what he's asking to do. And here's his new statement, which is even more unhinged than the one this morning, but even more violent at the same time. And it says, it's time. We are a nation in steep decline, being led into the World War III by a crooked politician who doesn't even know he's alive, but who is surrounded by evil and sinister people who, based on their actions of defunding the police, destroying our military, open borders, no border ID, inflation, raising taxes, and much more, can only hate our now failing USA. We just can't allow this anymore. They're killing our nation as we sit back and watch. We must save America. Protest, protest, protest. And again, with Donald Trump, 
protests aren't peaceful. They're not. He does not get the benefit of the doubt. Any other politician, frankly, even other Republicans, as much as I would hate to admit it, when they call for protests, they should get the benefit of the doubt that it's not a call for violence. But Donald Trump has a track record. He has a record in this sense. He has a rap sheet in this sense. He has called for people to stand back and stand by. He's called for people to get wild. He's called for people to do whatever it takes to help save the country. And what did that lead to? It led to January 6th and the loss of life on that day. And now it's even bigger stakes for Trump because he just lost the White House at that time. Now he could be losing his freedom. It is going to be even more violent potentially if he can convince his base to get violent. We don't know if that's going to happen, but that is his intent. Restore your eyesight back to perfect 2020 vision with this simple 60 second method that anyone can do from the comfort of their own home. Ditch your reading glasses and forget about expensive eye surgery. Just follow these simple steps to reverse and prevent age-related Okay, let's see what else we got. Traders, it big time. Oh, lose. Crisis at Silicon Valley Bank led to an old-fashioned bank run. Are we in the midst of a new financial crisis? President Biden proposes a budget while the GOP struggles to do the same. Then the Manhattan DA brings in Michael Cohen, signaling they may be close to announcing an indictment. We'll discuss all of that and more. This is Majority 54. All right, Jason. Well, we've been through a couple of these types of things before now. And something something feels really rocky right now uh, in the banking sector and this economy generally. This this bank called Silicon Valley Bank, which I confess to have not did not know that this bank was a bank. It's like a huge bank, too. It turns out. Yeah, like two hundred billion dollars in assets, and I didn't realize. You know, Thursday, Friday of last week, I started having people in my life cancel meetings. I I didn't realize how many people <laughs> in my life banked with Silicon Valley Bank, which I think is a measure of how out of touch I've become. You know, uh, but or, this or, is. Well, I don't know. Is that me? Oh, I guess the just the amount of people, and not that you didn't know, but that how yeah. many people in your life bank was. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. you're right. That I agree. Yeah. That is a measure of that. I still, for the record, use Bank of America. This the very account I opened when I was 18 years old is still my <laughs> bank account. So I have not changed. And not even a podcast just, Now we're just giving out free ones. Bank of America. Yeah. You give us a call. Yeah, well, well, Silicon Valley Bank apparently was founded in 1983, the year of my birth, which means I've outlived it, it seems. <laughs> yes. uh, so uh, it, it, let me give you some background on what happened last week, and then we'll talk a little bit about what's happened in the past few days. So uh, this bank, founded in 1983, became known uh, as heavy in helping out tech startups, and they were particularly successful during the pandemic. Uh, their deposits tripled. Uh, from the period ending in 2019 to the end of 2021. So triple their deposits. And they put a chunk of those deposits into long-term bonds and treasuries because banks tend to want to make money with the money that they have. 
in deposits. And the problem with these uh, long-term bonds and treasuries is uh, you don't get the money you put in it until the bond matures or you sell the bond. And so what wound up happening is the Fed started raising interest rates, which reduces the value of these bonds. And so if you're listening and you might be like, well, why does a bond lose value as interest rates rise? There are a couple of reasons, one of which is people issue new bonds at higher interest rates at that period of time. So the opportunity cost of buying your bond uh, doesn't make sense. So people will want to buy new bonds. There's other reasons like present value and discount rates and all that, but this is not an economics podcast. So we won't go into that because you've already uh, lost me. So, <laughs> but you know, like if you're not my you're area, making, man, pretend you have a bond that pays you out 2%, but okay. now the interest rates go up and now it says you can get 6% on the market. Right. Uh, why would I buy your bond? So I would buy something yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's essentially what happens. So, um, the fed interest rate hikes also cool the economy which, and especially the tech sector has been struggling, which means people are depositing less in the bank. So a mm-hmm. bunch of things are happening at once. And so uh, tech companies are pulling deposits. They're making less deposits as well because they're pulling deposits to make payroll and all this kind of stuff, but they're also making less deposits and there are fewer tech startups generally at this period of time. So when all of this is going on, Silicon Valley Bank uh, has to sell $21 billion, so about 10% of their assets, $21 billion of uh, bonds at a 9% loss. So they're basically saying, hey, we need to sell these at a loss so that we can make good on our depositors. Now, if that was all of the, that was, if that was the only part of the story, we wouldn't even be talking about this. We might not even know about it. But they did a strange thing. They announced that they were doing this, and then they said they were going to issue new stock in their bond, in their bank and sell it to make up for that loss, which basically sent a bit of a panic through the tech sector last week. And a, and a few prominent venture capitalists like Peter Thiel got on apparently text threads and were basically talking to each other uh, and sowing panic amongst their own ranks and then telling their companies that they've invested in to pull their money out of this bank. So, so you know, why we, did the bank do that? Why did it do, Why did it say that it was yeah, why did it to, announced? I mean, that's because it feels like there's a lot of people feeling like there's some backdoor in this to this some you mm-hmm. know like yeah the, the the doj being one of them right yeah yes. i i think we won't we don't know also, for I sure think i just invented a word back yeah <laughs> we don't know for sure we do know that certain executives at this bank sold uh significant stock allocations a week before all of this including uh, the ceo right yeah including the ceo now the way this works is you have to file a month ahead of time in order to do that so if if this was some kind of sinister move it was long in the planning this wouldn't mm-hmm. this might not have been a kind of thing that was a fly by night operation now the bank run was a short term panic and by most accounts this bank wasn't even remotely the worst off bank uh like you know related to its peers like there was this paper uh that matthew iglesias for example was circulating that just came out that essentially said there are you know a ton of other banks that if you compare them to silicon valley bank were had way worse fundamentals what silicon it it feels like silicon valley tech executives and you know entrepreneur folks were just like it feels like a like a mob hit on this yeah. thing, right? It's I mean, weird because this is their own. So this is the equivalent of 
you know, like in Staten Island Bank, in Staten Island, we have Richmond County Savings Bank, which is where a lot of people open their first savings account where we come from and where a lot of people get their mortgages. I'm sure you have the equivalents in Kansas City. Right. This is the equivalent. And, and these the Silicon Valley Bank is not just the bank to the tech sector, but they give apparently really low interest mortgages to people who wouldn't otherwise qualify, but who are working for startups. They give bridge loans to startups that wouldn't otherwise be able to get them. This is a bank that is really took, taking care of their own. And what's amazing to me is just how ruthless these tech companies and VC are where they just basically were like they just cut mm-hmm. these people loose uh and so what wound up happening is there was an old-fashioned run on this bank and then people couldn't pull their money out of it because the fdic stepped in and then uh what happened was uh the federal reserve so there was a panic sewing friday and through the weekend and then uh the fdic and federal reserve stepped in and essentially took control of this bank and another bank that was struggling, Signature Bank. And so now this is two bank failures in a few days that are now the two, number two and number three largest bank failures in American history in a matter of a couple of days. And what the FDIC and Federal Reserve did is they guaranteed deposits. And they said, all right, anybody who has a deposit in this bank is, it, you could take your money out on Monday, which is exactly what happened, which is why the markets kind of have stabilized somewhat their their medium and small size banks are still struggling in the market but by and large at least in the short term a crisis has been averted but there's a lot of politics here jason a lot of politics. Well, okay so to compare it to 08 they're allowing the banks to fail right? yeah i mean they're, but they're they're making the depositors whole but they're not they're not doing what they did before which is we got you know it's it's like a national imperative that this that this corporation continue to exist and we're going to put a bunch of government money in there i mean in addition like it's not really taxpayer dollars right it's it's fees paid by banks that fund the fdic yes but there is a caveat here and i and i i've been in some debates with people over the past few days about this and part of it isn't the government isn't totally clear about this by and large yes there's one thing that the Federal Reserve said that I'm not quite sure how this is going to work in practice, and I haven't seen any really good reporting on this, which is they essentially said that they were going to make loans available to banks that honors uh, the, and I forget the technical term, but essentially remember what I was saying about bonds earlier, mm-hmm. like that you have a bond that pays out at the end, but it's now trading at below its value. And in this case, they, they sold it at 9% below their value, losing a mm-hmm. ton of money. What the Federal Reserve is saying, they, they're going to loan out money to banks, recognizing the face value, uh, the, the basically the end result value, the paper value of these bonds, even if they're trading lower than that. That is a sense a subsidy uh, to these banks. So, sure. if they, so if they do that, I think that's politically explosive and then lends some credence to the sense that I wouldn't call it a bailout, but I would say it is taxpayer dollars at work there because it's not a good investment for the taxpayers. Right. And but let's go to Biden for a second, because he you know, he basically he came out pretty clear on this and I think signaled some confidence and his his comments uh, yesterday. What are we at today? Tuesday. Yeah, yesterday were. Part of what I think was a pretty, even though I, I have some questions about what's going on here, was a pretty effective federal response to basically cool everybody down. Let's go to this clip. Hey, thanks for the quick action of my administration over the past few days. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. 
and that hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. Last week, when we learned of the problems of the banks and the impact they could have on jobs of small businesses and banking systems overall, I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. They've done that. They've done that. On Friday, the government regulator in charge, the FDIC, took control of Silicon Valley Bank's assets. And over the weekend, it took control of Signature Bank's assets. Treasury Secretary Yellen and a team of banking regulators have taken action, immediate action. And here are the highlights. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills, and stay open for business. No losses will be, and I'm on, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that, because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. So that last part is key, Jason, because there were regulations, 2008 Dodd-Frank, capital and liquidity requirements, and stress tests to basically say, how do we avoid a 2008 financial crisis? And then in 2018, congressional Republicans with some Democrats uh, exempted small and medium-sized banks. And interestingly, the, and they raised the threshold uh, for the stress tests, like the key stress tests, to $250 billion. Now, Silicon Valley Bank is $200 billion. So one of the stress tests that they would have been required to do is what happens if interest rates skyrocket. Uh. So they, they would have been at least forced to play out what happened. So this is a classic case of regulation uh, being really – regulation could have stopped this potentially. Well, a regulation that was in place. And so, place. Yeah. you know, a, a few years ago and uh, but until the Trump administration, right? You know what? Because we're talking about the politics of this, one of the things that strikes me about that clip of Biden there is how much we probably politicians on both sides of the aisle, but particularly how much politicians on the left have learned over the yes, last few years yes. about how to talk. <laughs> right? Yes. Like, yeah. I mean, there's some stuff in there that, like, you would not have expected a few years ago to be in a president's prepared remarks but should be right yep. like his prepared this is like the first stuff he's saying to make sure every, nobody freaks out and there's not a run on banks and that you don't have a huge political problem and people thinking that you handed out a sweetheart deal he says i mean he uses the words the management of these banks will be fired right he's not like being diplomatic about that he's like i need people to know this fact right yeah uh, and and then he's also saying like it doesn't involve any taxpayer dollars. So the difference now in like being aggressive and going out there and saying, look, I know what they're going to try to say 
about me. And I know what you're wondering. So I'm just going to address it the way you would in a one-on-one conversation with somebody. But in that case, he's talking to the country. Like that's a big deal that we've come that far in a Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think what's fascinating to me is this is, this was such a classic case where regulation could have mitigated the risk of this happening. I'm not saying it for sure could have stopped it because in the end, this was a bank that was probably solvent. We'll find out for sure. It was the panic really that did it in. And, you know, if there are animal spirits involved, like does a stress test really stop that? We don't know. But, uh, but what's fascinating to me is these, uh, the congressional Republicans and Republicans writ large are trying to make this about an elite bailout. Now, like this is the, this is the tech sector, uh-huh. Democrats are close. And remember who we're talking about here, Peter Thiel and these guys who are all Trump guys on a text message thread. These are the people getting bailed out here. Now, are all these tech companies, uh, Republicans, of course not. Like Crooked Media, for example, had credit cards with this bank, you know? Mm-hmm. So like it's complicated, but of course they don't, they don't want to make a complicated situation complicated. They want to make it about this elite narrative within the Democratic Party. And if this were the Farmers Bank of Santa Clara County, uh, this would not be this. It wouldn't have the same kind of tinge to it. Right. right. But the fact that it's called Silicon Valley Bank, I think, makes this very politically difficult for Biden. Well, I, some of the memes and takes that I found most interesting about it focus on the like the common economic libertarianism of uh, Silicon Valley and of so many of these founders, right? Like, I think I saw one that was just saying, like, it was imitating them and being like, we don't need the government to do anything. We'll just solve all the problems that the government can't solve. Oh, wait, what? Interest rate? <laughs> government, get in here. Where are you, government? Like, right. wh- why is it taking so long, <laughs> right? And, uh, right? And and I think that there is an element of that there. So, so it is... It's, it's like especially ironic, right? It's not just that you have the Peter Thiels of the world, but you also have, even for, you know, some of the more maybe liberal uh, folks in Silicon Valley, a lot of them still come from like a fiscally sort of libertarian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, you and I have actually both, for different reasons, spent a fair amount of time in Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, I've been out there because I've been out there to raise political money. And... Uh, well, that's probably actually part of why you've been out there. <laughs> so not that yeah, that's exactly what I've spent time there. That's, that is yeah. the only that is the only time I've spent there. Yeah. yeah, I've not I've not I've not been out there talking to people about my including with Sam Bakeman Freed's mother. <laughs> literally, right. literally, I don't know if I've shared that in this podcast. I would say like at least fifty percent of the time I've been in Silicon Valley, I have sat down with Sam Bakeman Freed's family because they used to be like very involved in democratic raising. Uh, and thankfully, I've never taken any of their money. Uh, I only have seen them around. Uh, the circuit. Well, yeah. and I, I haven't either that I know of, but I've, uh, you know, I've been out there with, I've sat down with a lot of bold faced Silicon Valley names. Now we don't have conversations about how Silicon Valley works because I just had, you just had to explain how a bank run works. <laughs> I, you know, I, I remember like several years ago sitting down with a, with a dude before crypto became a thing and he explained cryptocurrency to me. And I was like, this is crazy. This will never be a thing. I'm sure he didn't explain it. Right. Cause I, I've still yet to find a person who can explain crypto to me. <laughs> well, including, including I've been on the, I've been on a call before with a Cornell professor who wrote a whole book about crypto. And at the end of it, I was more confused than when I started. Yeah. I mean, well, so, uh, you know, I've been in that world and it's one of the things that's so interesting to me about that world is that, it's not that the people aren't, you know, a lot of them 
are good people like anywhere else. There's a smattering of this and that. But what's so interesting to me is that the culture there is so about the quant thing. It's about, yep. it's not about the quality of anything. It's about the, can you quantify? It's very, it's a very analytical culture as, as you would imagine to the point where I don't know what your experience was. I don't think we've ever talked about this, but like for me as a political fundraiser out there, who's basically, you know, you're basically selling something, right? When you're fundraising right. politically, you're selling a story, you're trying to make an emotional pitch in order to, uh, you know, make the sale, get someone to invest in what you're after. And I found Silicon Valley to be the one of the wealthiest places I went to raise money, but also uh, at the same time, one of the hardest places to actually raise money because my usual stuff where I would appeal to people's like emotions and that kind of thing, it just didn't work because everybody was so uh, purely analytical that like, it just was like, it wasn't work. You know, people just kind of stared yeah. back at me. It's uh, funny you should say hard. this. It's funny. This is actually an interesting uh, aside because the reason why I knew the the Bankman Freed family is because I was I had one model for candidate support, which was very much about the quality of the candidate. And part of our model at Arena was we find really strong candidates, and we pair them up with difficult uh, districts. Mm -hmm. What Bankman Freed's uh, family was doing, and it was his brother and his mom. Uh, that where they were doing the quantitative method that you're talking about, which is what do the numbers say the right places to invest in? And what's interesting to me is if you look back, and so we would often be at the same fundraisers, this is how I would always run into them, and we'd be pitching the same donors on different theories of the case. And if you look back at the candidates that we were pitching versus the candidates they were pitching, who are the candidates that we were pitching? Uh, Houlihan, Alyssa Slotkin, Haley Stevens, Lauren Underwood. You know, you go down the list, these candidates, Lena Hidalgo, right? These candidates, you know, won difficult races and by and large have survived. And uh, analytically on paper, they would not have been. No way. Lauren Underwood. Investment. Are you kidding me? Naperville, Illinois, yeah. you know, like, like these were Fad, tough, tough races. white conservative district. Yeah. Uh, you know, one by a, one by a black woman and then held by a black woman. Uh, so what I'm saying, it, Jason, is I'm proud of me. Yeah, I'm proud. Well, it's funny because it, it it's it's kind of like for baseball fans uh, that there people may be somewhat familiar. Anybody who's seen Moneyball is familiar with the idea that there is still this, you know, these two worlds in in baseball, right? The old school people who are like, ah, too many statistics. Or, you know, I can I know a baseball player when I see one, and this is true in all sports now, really. And then yep. all the analytical folks, you know, who want to who want to get into the data. Yeah, I guess I'm the old scout in that example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but because there's a place for both. My funny, uh, somewhat related Silicon Valley fundraising story is um, also one where I I don't think I got funding. Um, so it was uh, Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter, who's a, a St. Louis guy, and his, his parents are still in St. Louis. Good family, good Missouri family. Uh, I was raising money for Let America Vote. I want to say this is like 17 or 18, 2017, 2018, something like that. So I go to Twitter, and I sit down. Actually, I think it was at Square at that time, and I sit down with Jack Dorsey. And uh, and speaking of the, like, I'm going to make sort of an emotional appeal thing, uh, he was very nice, didn't end up, uh, you know, making a donation to Let America Vote. But my my like emotional appeal was because he was a Missouri guy. I brought this T-shirt from this T-shirt store in Springfield, Missouri, that makes these shirts that it, uh, just say Missouri is awesome. And it's all these different Missouri is awesome slogans. And it's it's just fun merch. The thing is, I didn't realize Jack Dorsey 
is a is a pretty uh, uh, small person, right? Like, I don't know. That's probably the wrong <laughs> term. Jack Dorsey is not a big guy, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know. He's I don't want to guess his height and weight, but I'm bigger than Jack Dorsey, right? And um, and uh, and so I brought because you know when you don't know what T-shirt size to get somebody, you generally go medium or large, you know. And uh, Jack Dorsey, I think, certainly wears a small. Um, and uh, and so it was just this awkward moment where he, being a very analytical guy, didn't really care that I brought him a T-shirt anyway. But on top of that, he must have just been like, "What a dope!" Like I brought him a shirt that was, I basically brought him a night shirt. Um, and we never he never mentioned it. He was very nice about it. But that was kind of my I have always thought about that about the difficulty of raising money out there. Um, oh man! But anyway, point being, what? what I was going where I was going with all this is that you know you were saying all these folks who have invested in this, what is essentially a community bank, their larger, very wealthy, very entrepreneurial community, having no qualms about just sort of knifing that bank and making a right. run on that bank, because no matter what their moral framework, and it's different for each of them as it is different for every human, the way they do business is it's all dictated by the numbers, even more than, than a lot of corporations in this country. And I, and I think that's a lot of what happened. There's something wrong with our society where people just can come together like that and say, you know what, this institution, which has done so much for us, we, we're just going to kill it. And, it, you know, that text thread should have been, how do we save this bank? There was enough money around right. the table to save that bank. And they could have just saved it by doing nothing. But they, yeah. they, they really could have, they should have just been coming together. And, and it's amazing that this isn't even, this wasn't the dominant part of the conversation. And it, and it, and it makes you think. People are saying this was a an old fashioned, you know, early. I had a guy say to me the other day, "This is an early 20th century run." I'm like, "This is a this is a 2023 run." Like right. the text thread, the fact that you could pull your money out, like like these guys would have had to go to the bank back in the day and pull it out. It would have been way slower. The government could have reacted faster. Uh, but the other thing that this raises is, and also, where would they have met up to come up with all this? Right? They would. Yeah. Have, everybody down to the barber shop. We're going to talk about how to do this. The contagion risk would have been much lower. Now, the the other problem now is that in 2023 there was this you know this saying back in 2008 too big to fail and when you said too big to fail you meant Bank of America you meant Chase mm -hmm. you meant Goldman Sachs Lehman right now you've got this is the 16th largest bank in the country is somehow now too big to fail mm -hmm. and so you're like well what the hell is going on here like if all mm -hmm. these institutions are too big to fail in the 2023 environment then we really got to rethink our regulation. Well, it it makes me think about like. You know, we, we don't really think about how uh, genius of a concept the FDIC is ever. Yeah, like, it really you know, is. It's right? You don't think about that. Yeah, you don't think about that the way you don't think about how amazing it is that they're able to pick up your trash, right? Like, but like, it took a lot of work to figure out how to pick up your trash, right? Uh, now, and a lot of hardship, honestly. Like, if you look about the FDIC, right? right. Like, like people and, had to really suffer for us to come up with that concept. Exactly. Like, you know, coming out of the 30s, coming out of all those experiences, just the fact that those guys can be on that, and I assume maybe some gals be on that text chain and say, like, and know that a certain amount of the depositors are going to be covered by this institution that's been created by regulation, by government, without government, like this takes everything down. Right. Like it doesn't matter that it's the 16th biggest bank. It causes a run everywhere else, right? Like you and I are going to take, take money out of our banks if this happens and there's no FDIC and there's no, right? Like, so it's just, my point being it, as a, as a progressive, it is always important to note the opportunities, make the case 
for government because like we talk about a lot of the time we have to accept the idea that we are the party of government we are the party right. that says like no government has a role to play and it's really important and government can do good things we shouldn't just take a situation like this where everybody understands the fdic exists and what it does and and just ignore it we should be like no no, no. see this is actually a really good example that people won't notice otherwise Totally agree. Well, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to talk about Biden's budget versus essentially nothing from the Republicans, how that debate is playing out. We're going to talk about Michael Cohen testifying uh, in front of a grand jury in this Trump indictment. And we're also going to talk about DeSantis versus Trump. Trump just put out another video attacking DeSantis today. We're going to unpack that and more. Let's hear from our sponsors. Well, longtime listeners of the show know that my favorite thing I take every single day is Athletic Greens, and this is your daily nutritional insurance. And what they have is this is just one scoop of powder that you put in water. It tastes really good, and it gives you 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients. And I take it now in place of coffee in the morning, but of course you could take it and take your coffee in the morning. And then if I'm like particularly active during the day, like if I have like a crazy workout or I just am on my feet all day and, and feeling a little run down, I'll take it a second time. And I travel everywhere with it. And if you're looking for a simpler, cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. You can go to athleticgreens.com slash majority. That's athleticgreens.com slash majority to check it out. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know that these dog days, these last days of winter can be really difficult for people. It's dark over here in New York. It's snowing out and it's really important to identify the way that your mood changes at this time. I certainly feel it. And it's important that if you're not feeling right to get help. And what I love about BetterHelp, our sponsor, is that they offer uh, therapy. It sounds to me like Biden and the veterans of the Obama administration learned from the previous negotiations with, with Congress over uh, the budget during you know recession risk. And last time they agreed to a lot of fiscal constraint on the front end and basically negotiated with themselves. And Biden came out and said, you know what? I've added 12 million jobs, more jobs than in two years than any president has created in a four-year term, uh, including 800,000 manufacturing jobs. The unemployment rate is at 3.4%, the lowest in 54 years. So he's like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a little pep in my step, and I, I'm not going to negotiate with myself here. I'm going to just put out the budget I want. And this budget is really detailed. You know, I was going through this, and it has you know too much to mention, but it protects and strengthens Medicare. It extends the solvency of Medicare's trust fund by at least 25 years uh, without cutting benefits or raising the costs for beneficiaries. It cuts taxes for families. It extends the uh, full child tax credit, uh, which was in the American Rescue Plan. And, you know, that... You know, think about all the things that Biden has done, like the the child tax credit cut child poverty in half in 2021 to its lowest level in history. Right. It's amazing that that's a thing that happened and not just like an academic thing that you could claim a CBO estimate would say your proposal would do. Like, that's a thing that happened. It's crazy. It's, it's hard to talk about these things because the tax credit, right? Like these are not like yeah. easy things to talk about. You know, speaking of, you know, extended key sections of the ACA, or he's trying to, uh, it would give Medicare more power to negotiate prescription drug prices. It invests $150 billion over 10 years to improve and expand Medicaid home and community-based services. You know, totally underrated issue right now where we have the largest group of right, retirees we've ever had and will ever have. 
So it's going to be really important to try to keep those folks as much as possible out of nursing homes, given like the kind of care they need, especially the most vulnerable society. Uh, it provides almost a billion dollars in 2024 to expand the National Health Service Corps, uh, which provides loan repayment and scholarships to healthcare professionals in exchange for practicing in underserved areas. This is the stuff that we talked about with student loans a while ago mm -hmm. that got me in trouble with my new best friend, our mm -hmm. baker in Kansas, which is like I was saying, look, like let's tie relief to certain jobs in our society. Uh, obviously, we're going to add those bakers in because she and I are really cool now, and I understand <laughs> more now than I knew before. Uh, but the uh, that's a that's a deep cut for some of our new listeners. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, yeah. but you got to reward the the longtime listeners. You got to reward the longtime listeners. But this some of this did you know about some of this stuff? I didn't like I didn't know this stuff was on the table. Right. So this is like it's crazy. And it's got supply side housing stuff, like basically building more supply. Like Newsom has gotten much better on this kind of stuff where they're trying to push. New York is doing this. Hoke is doing this in, in, in New York and California is doing this under Newsom. Biden's not doing this. Democrats are getting now in the business of building more housing and understanding that's a key to affordability and integration. This stuff is like each one of these things is a humongous deal. Right. I, I have I have different emotions when I read like when I read about the budget, one is, uh, man, I know it was like almost impossible. It would have been really cool to keep the house uh, because you could do this stuff. Right. Um, two, like it bumps me out because I'm like, uh, because first you're like, you read it and you're like, Oh, that's cool. That's cool. And then you remember, well, this isn't happening. This yeah. is like basically academic. This is, this is no different. I mean, to make a real nerd callback, uh, this is no different than like the bills that were proposed when you were in student Congress in high school, right? right? Like right. it has the same authority because there's a Republican house and that's kind of a bummer when you realize that, but at the same time, there's stuff in there, uh, that I mean, if you're being honest, I don't know. And there's even stuff that wasn't proposed when we had unified control of government, um, because you don't want to propose it and then not be able to do it. But now that right. you know you're not going to get your stuff done, like the billionaire tax that is a 25% you know, annual income tax of, of you know, their overall worth or their overall uh, income for that year um, of the 0.01%, top 0.01% of the population, for whatever reason, that wasn't proposed before, probably because people would have been really mad when you know, Mansion and Cinema wouldn't have allowed them to actually do it. Right. Uh, so some of it is political. Cinema, cinema senator from venture capital, private right. equity. Uh, yes. it's, a, it's a small town in Arizona, but uh, yeah, she, she's clearly auditioning. No, I hear you. He's, he's playing opposition politics in the presidency. Which yes, I think this well is said. a lesson. This is a lesson learned from the midterms, where we were playing. I was talking to Kristen Soltis Anderson, uh, the Republican uh, pollster. I think she's kind of like a moderate. I don't even think she considers herself a Republican anymore, but I was talking to her the other day about how this is like Biden did something remarkable in that race because he was able to turn the Supreme Court and a couple other issues like election denialism. What was happening in state houses around the country to say, look, I may be the president, but there are all these other people who are in control of various forms of government, in some cases like the Supreme Court stopping me from doing critical things, they're as much uh, on this ballot as I am. And that was really successful. So I think they're learning from that as we head towards this election. Yeah, because what we would do in the past is we would just fall into the idea that why aren't we able to do the things that we said we were going to do? Right? And, and, and then we turn on each other, which we're exactly. not doing right now, thank God. Exactly. Know? And uh, the, the other thing I got from 
so far from paying attention to this budget debate that's so interesting to me is the very difficult situation the Republicans are in because they've made all of these lofty promises of things that they want to do. And the expectation, I'm sure, of their voters is that they at least pass something out of the House that does the stuff that they want to do, right? That they balance the budget, that they... But then Biden and the Democrats have forced them because they don't want to actually lose the majority and they don't want to lose the seats that are in more competitive areas to commit to things like and also because they don't want to lose generally to commit to things like not cutting Medicare or Social Security, at least on paper, which is why they can't create a budget. Like they can't offer right. a budget that's going to pass the House because you, they can't do both of those things because like like Biden can be like, I'm going to balance the budget by a certain period of time because he throws in there the idea that, hey, we're going to really increase taxes on the top 0.01 percent. And knowing that that makes sense to people and the people aren't going to yeah. be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now that's the third rail. Don't touch the 0.01 percent. Right. You know, <laughs> you know. Whereas, like, they can't do that because well, that's their funders. Well, you know, Biden met with McCarthy, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, things got interesting there. Um, Salty, I don't know if you could tee up this video, but th- let's go to a video of Biden as he came out of that meeting uh, with McCarthy. Why aren't you investing in real estate? Seriously, what are you doing to own property in 2023? Look, I get it. You might even be thinking right now, well, Sean, it's because I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars just sitting around doing nothing. Okay, that's why, right? But just for a second, I want you to think what a second stream of income could do for you and your family. Real strategies that normal people like you and I could actually do. And I'm not talking about some private jet or a vacation home on a beach somewhere. I'm talking about new income that you currently don't have. Okay, how about $1,600, $3,000, or even $6,000 a month? Now, stay with me. Right now, it doesn't matter how much money you have, how old or young you are. Anybody can buy property, and I'm going to show you how to do it for pennies on the dollar. First, look at this property right here. Okay, this is Madrid. I paid $27,000 for this property and own it free and clear with no mortgage. And without putting a dime of my own money in it, I'm going to sell it for over $235,000. That's right. And this is a right now deal. This is the oldest investment strategy in America. It's called tax lien certificates. You see, the county has to get rid of these properties. It's the law. So they partner with people like you and I to make these delinquent accounts whole. When you invest in tax lien certificates, only one of two things can happen. Number one, you receive government-mandated checks in the mail for $2,000, $3,000, even $6,000. Or number two, you take ownership of the properties and own them free and clear. My friends, these are the exact steps that I have followed for the last 30 years. This has allowed me to scale my real estate portfolio year after year. Now, the good news is, If you're watching this video, it means that we're coming to your area to teach a class on tax lien certificates. So click the link below, reserve your two seats for you and a friend, and start your journey to a new income and set yourself free. I'll see you there. Dark floaters and blind spots. I can't see.
Joe Barton here. Now, if you're type 2 and currently taking common blood sugar meds, then hurry and check your vision for these two things that I'm going to show you in this video right now. First of all, if you're seeing dark spots and floaters or noticing your vision has been getting blurry, I just want you to know that it may have nothing to do with your eyes or your age or even needing new glasses. You see, this is because type 2 hardens and damages blood vessels all over the body. But what most people don't realize is that type 2 affects the blood vessels that connect to our eyes and the brain. The U.S. National Eye Institute explains the sugar in our body can block the tiny blood vessels that go to your retina, causing it to leak fluid and even blood. And that's why we start seeing these odd floaters or dark spots. And this scary thing could be happening right now to you, and it's called type 2 retinopathy. And it's the leading cause of blindness in the U.S. So if you're seeing floaters, notice blurry vision, even though you've gotten new glasses, experience dizziness, become more sensitive to light, and want to know what you must do to start taking care of this issue, I just posted a short video clip showing folks exactly how to clear out this vision concern, all while maintaining healthy blood sugar levels at the same time. And you can see it all for free by clicking the Watch Now button below. But many people never get a chance to do so because they end up confused. And it's unfair that people must endure years of pain and damage before figuring this out. I discovered it's mainly because very few people are equipped with the proper knowledge, like what foods to eat and even what blood-destroying drinks that they must avoid. And if you're sick of generic advice such as, Get more exercise! Or, Take more meds! which leads nowhere and almost always fails. Listen, I just posted a brand new video showing what folks over 40 with blood sugar concerns must do to start naturally fixing type 2 and seeing healthier glucose levels in days. That's right. So for anyone looking to take back control of their life and their blood sugar health, go ahead and tap on the Watch Now button below to see my brand new free video right now. And when you get there, you'll see the three worst drinks that folks with type 2 must steer clear of, which your doctor may have forgotten to tell you or may not even know about. What will be your message? <laughs> show me your budget, I'll show you mine. I mean, yet, yet another example of where, you know, like, even in early Obama days, that same situation, Obama is going to say, you know, well, I, I think the fact well, that they have not yet offered, yeah, well, they have not yet offered a budget says a lot about, and, you know, and now we've gotten to the point where Biden, the guy who's been in Washington for, for 40 plus years, right? Even he now, his natural instinct is to just be like, show me yours, I'll show you mine. Like, speaking yeah. ways people remember, usually speak. Remember this uh, 
and by the way, if you can hear the honking, that's that's true New York out there. It's authentic. But the you know, I don't you, even, you can hear on my side my daughter just singing a song. Like that, that's <laughs> yeah. true. I'm 41 and I got two you know, a wife and two kids and I live in Kansas City. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, I don't remember the exact words exchanged, but I remember when Obama and Paul Ryan had this exchange over the deficit. Do you remember this? And um, I bet you if we replayed it, it would be the most like totally chill like right. diffused situation ever, but everybody was clutching their pearls at the time. Like, Oh my God. And apparently Paul Ryan was like offended. And I think what Obama did was basically have a policy debate. Right. Sure. And now things have changed so much. Well, so, um, so that's the budget debate. I think like essentially Republicans don't have one. They may never offer one. They're criticizing Biden. I'm not sure it's really landing. I'm not sure that the budget debate is going to be where, you know, this election is decided, but the, the obviously the um, the debt limit could matter, and the sort of nihilism of Republicans could matter, and so I think like that's obviously something we're keeping our eyes on over the next few months as that well, debate heats up. And when you talk to your friends about the politics of this moment, it's like, okay, you you might not agree with with Biden on a lot of things, but like of the two, he's offering an idea, like he's doing yeah. something, he's offering a budget, and what is the other side doing? Not not only are they not offering a budget, but on top of that, you know, all we know about their budget is that one of their lead budget planners said that the most important thing their budget can do is not harm their majority. So right. it's like, and we always talk about assigning motive, like that's what they're interested in. They're interested we, exclusively in how many members of Congress they have and not, you know, what happens for the country. Well, this is what I would say to Ben LeBolt and some of these other people in Biden world if they if they were to ever ask my opinion on this as they head towards the next election, which is we've got to learn from decades of getting our asses kicked by Republicans. What were they really good at? They were the party of more of the same stability, conserve, small C conservative. You know, the world is not going to change too much. And the, the Democrats, we were the party of the 60s, right? The boomers, mm -hmm. like the Bill Clinton generation, the people with the long hippie hair. And then they finally cut it like, well, who's Tony Blair? Who's Bill Clinton? These were children really of the 60s, right? And mm -hmm. they were like, even though we're not talking about the most radical people in the world, they represented people who were kind of trying to push change constantly, change, change, change. Now, what we have, where we find ourselves is we have to do, we have to play two different games at once. We want to push change increase rights for people, et cetera. That's baked into our politics, right? But by and large, we've won a lot of those battles. And right now we're playing defense on those battles. But then when it comes to other critical things like this bank situation and any instability in the economy, the debt limit increase, the Ukraine war, the pandemic, you go down the line and you say, all right, who are the people who are for stability? That's us. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is tell a story to the American people like what the Republicans used to tell, but a more ethical version of the story to say, look, like the world may not be exactly what you want it to be, but you could count on certain things. You can count on going to the bank. You can count on, you know, aggressive dictatorships, not invading our shores or the shores of our allies. You can count on the U S government paying its bills, right? These are all things that you can count on that you cannot count on if the Republicans take power because they are radicals. Right. And so, like, I think we need to get into the, you know, the habit of telling that story. And I know it's not natural to us because we're the people often pushing for change. Well, and what we've got to do, I agree with you completely, is we've got to bake in the idea that change is part of, of you know, sustainability and of stability. Right. That, like, that if you try and keep everything the same all the time, 
you you won't have stability. You've got to be able to change as times change. Uh, but the difference is, is that they also want to change, but they want to change back to stuff right. from a long time ago that we've learned lessons since. And, yeah, and nerdy so, political point. That right. was actually that what the Labor Party tried to peg Cameron with in that election. They used to say he wants to turn back the clock to the 1980s, and they had this, like this really funny ad with a British television show. There's like one person in our audience who will get that reference. But uh, okay. Now, this is for the Midas audience. I know they love our, our Trump DA investigation stuff. The Midas Midas, we call them. So, uh, you know, right down the street, you could see it actually from my window, is the Manhattan DA's office. And Michael Cohen has now testified in front of the grand jury uh, or is testifying. And this is, you know, one of a few signs that uh, Alvin Bragg, our district attorney in Manhattan, is closing in on an indictment of trump now who knows for sure if this is going to happen but it seems like you know most people i trust in this orbit including reporters and just people who are around the courthouse and around the district attorney's office seem to think this is imminent jason like i i I can't even wrap my head around how explosive this is going to be well because it seems like it's going to coincide with another indictment in georgia probably like not too far off uh yeah, I was listening to something the other day that if you're indicted and they were like, well, you get arraigned. And they're like, well, what does that mean? They said, well, the actual policy in New York is, is that everyone in order to be arraigned must be handcuffed. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that alone is like, so I guess if things follow the way they're supposed to usually work, which with when it comes to Trump, they never do. But then in theory once he's indicted in order to come in and you know enter his plea and and that kind of thing he would have to be handcuffed in order to do that now i don't know if that'll happen but like Mm. it's it's about to get crazy and it is why as we've pointed out here before it is why trump announced so early because